0: You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rapport. Happy New Year. This week, this year, 2020, we are starting with Healthyish editor Amanda Shapiro as she talks to Chris Morocco and Andy Baraghani about the recipes in our third annual feel-good food plan. In case you missed it, we're cooking through 10 days of delicious week-nightable, week-nightable, that's a word dinners starting January 2nd, a.k.a. tomorrow, Um, but it's not a diet or a detox. It is instead an all-star lineup of brand new recipes guaranteed to become your new favorites all year long. You can find out more about the plan and access all the recipes at BeHealthyish.com or you can go to BonAppetit.com slash feel-good-food-plan and remember to tag Healthyish on Instagram and use hashtag Feel good food plan, no hyphens, uh, so we can see and share all of your beautiful photos. And then after that, Carla Lolly Music chats with Chris and in her debut podcast, senior food editor Anna Stockwell about gluten free cooking and baking. All right, here we go.
1: Okay, so it is January 1st, 2020 the beginning of an entirely new decade, and uh, we have an entirely new, healthy-ish, feel-good food plan to talk about today.
2: So I'm to spend the first day of the New Year with you guys. <laughs> yeah, how, new Year's Day. How, <laughs> Here we go. how hungover
1: are we all right now? <laughs> I'm probably not even awake right now, honestly. Um, <clears throat> My
3: kids have been up since 6.30 this morning.
1: <laughs> yeah. Some things don't change in no, the new decade. No, no nope. not at all. All right, well, let's talk about food because I don't know about you guys, but like I'm kind of ready for some healthish cooking uh, this about this time of year. Uh, And I think a lot of our listeners are too. So luckily, the Healthiest Feel Good Food Plan is back this year. This is our third year running. And before we jump into talking about the recipes, I just want to talk a little bit about um, how the plan is different this year. And, you know, we went into it, I think, with a slightly different philosophy and uh, ambition than we had in previous years. We really wanted to make these recipes stand out in some way and feel really
3: like they could exist any time. Exactly. Like each one was kind of a standalone. Right. In in the past two years, we've kind of created these week long kind of, you know, almost like menus, you know, like our plans, you know, like broken down week by week. And this year we just kind of wanted to get away from that a little bit. Right. We wanted each recipe to really stand on its own as something that you'd want to make all mm-hmm. year long.
2: A little more evergreen and things that just like techniques and ingredients. Uh, that you could just kind of integrate in your kitchen very easily.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of things we do in recipes for Healthy-ish that we don't really explicitly talk about, like certain techniques and certain ingredients and how we use them. And we wanted kind of people to learn something from the recipes this year and really take away a technique that they can apply uh, into their cooking all year long.
2: Mm -hmm. We get really excited about these recipes. I mean, more, I think this is, for Healthy-ish, this is by far the thing that I get the most excited for every year.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. we start like the, this in like, we start talking about it in like July and August. Yeah,
3: yeah. And it feels like the culmination of like a lot of where our thoughts are, you know, a lot of things like we've been thinking about through the year. Um, we kind of hold on to things that we want to, you know, kind of work into each year's uh, feel good food plan for sure.
2: And I think with each year, we kind of get feedback from, you know, our readers, home cooks, uh, the staff, and we kind of keep wanting to evolve and refine and, I think uh, honestly i think this year is the best one yet
1: yeah and i think for for listeners out there and people who are excited to cook through them you can definitely make these recipes as part of the plan it's a Mm -hmm. 10-day plan uh we split it into two weeks of shopping lists so you can do your first five recipe shopping your second five recipe shopping do it all the way through or you know these recipes like we said they're really made to stand alone so cook them in whatever order you want, or cook them over the course of as much time as you want. Um, This is really, it's made to be really flexible. Yeah, let's dive into some of the recipes because I think we had a really cool recipe development process this year. We weren't so tied to making sure we were reusing every single ingredient and fitting it into these shopping lists as much as we have in the past. So that really let you guys like dream pretty big, um, which was both a blessing and a curse. So I wanna start with the Actually, the first recipe, which we will be cooking together starting tomorrow, because the plant starts officially um, on the second, and the the kickoff recipe are um, cauliflower tacos with a cashew crema that Andy developed.
2: You know, this recipe, I think I I, I was very convinced from the get go, but I think not everybody on staff was convinced right away. I was like, uh, I'm going to be the... hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I am kind of maybe a little notorious, especially from the last two years with. I, I love all the recipes that I've developed for Feel Good Food Plan but sometimes they're a little bit on let's say they're lean austere yeah sometimes yes. beautiful Andy They'll has this beautiful. reputation but then you know you might get a little hungry at 2 in the you morning might but you like should be in bed might anyway, be for the so.
1: popcorn the leftover cookies at <laughs> yeah. like 10pm yeah.
2: but with this I knew that just having there, I knew it I wanted it to be vegetarian uh, I, I wanted to be kind of slicked with fat and I wanted to feel nourished and that's why like I did have some like some I don't want to say filler but I I had a a really great cashew sauce uh, go along with it. The tacos itself it's inspired by um, what I had at oh my god I'm blanking on the restaurant. Chris Where? Atla? Atla. Atla. Yes 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 yes. (laughs) So they had a version uh, they do uh, Brussels sprouts tacos they do a cauliflower Mm. taco and uh, there's a lot going on over there in this case, I kind of want a more streamlined uh, version so that people could actually make it at home. And uh, the first thing you do is really make a sauce that just made out of any kind of nut butter you like. I prefer cashew, but almond butter, would, almond butter or peanut butter would be great. Uh, and then I, it's kind of it like gets a little bit of a, a spice with some green chili or red chili, uh, garlic, uh, plenty of lime juice, and water to thin it out. Uh, and that's the sauce for the tacos.
1: And this sauce is such an amazing shortcut. Like the idea of just starting with a nut butter base, like you're not soaking nuts, you're not blending nuts, you're mm-hmm. just using whatever nut butter you you have on hand that you wanna use. Cashew, what uh, did you say, the other one? You could you use could
2: almonds. Cashew, uh, peanut, um, almonds, I think those three would work really well. Um, and and it's something that, yes, like I'm using it for the tacos, but it very much can be like an all-purpose sauce. You could thin it out and it could be a salad dressing. Really, whatever.
3: You really need that richness to kind of like balance out, you know, having like a vegetable star in your taco. Yes. Like you just need a little bit of that fat and something to grab onto.
1: And what are we doing with the cauliflower? With the
2: cauliflower, I knew I wanted to do like a hard roast. I didn't want them to be just like tender. I wanted to kind of like shrink up, get crispy, like uh, very, very dark. Uh, the cauliflowers are kind of. Uh, cut into one and a half, two inch piece uh, florets, which seem big, but they're, again, they're gonna really shrink up in the oven. And they get tossed with the mixture of olive oil, grated garlic, uh, cumin, and smoked paprika. And the paprika, the paprika kind of stains the cauliflower with this wonderful kind of brick red hue. And it gives this kind of almost smoky, meaty quality to the cauliflower. And then from there, you just uh, give it uh, a roast in the oven at 450 degrees, which definitely high heat. Yeah. Uh, And talk
1: for a second about cauliflower or like roasting vegetables in general, because I think people like have a hard time sometimes getting that really hard roast and getting like not just a pile of kind of mushy steamed vegetables. Like what are what are the tips that people need to know here?
2: I think you... uh, you want to space them out so they don't, they're do not they not on top of one another and they don't just steam. I pretty much rarely ever uh, line my um, baking sheet with foil when I'm roasting them. And then again, high heat. High heat, yeah. High heat, and I'll give them a toss maybe halfway.
1: And you just really the, want them to shrink up and exactly. get really dark.
2: And then from there, you really just assemble. You have some, um, I like corn tortillas, so I go with those. And then I just uh, spoon some of the spicy cashew sauce. Uh, the cauliflower, and then kind of whatever topping you like. A little bit more fat in the form of avocado, uh, some onions, radishes uh, for some crunch, uh, a little bit of uh, cilantro, maybe some mint leaves, um, and some lime juice.
1: Yeah, and the sauce and the seasoning on the cauliflower, I think you could make this into a taco bowl. Like Mm -hmm. you could kind of use these components really flexibly if you, um, you know, if you're not into the taco idea or if you want to, Use them
2: a hundred percent. If you don't want to use tortillas, you could serve it with rice. You could serve it with beans, and it would be a really nice uh, bowl, whether it's for lunch or, or dinner.
1: All right, so let's talk about another one, Chris. I wanna I wanna talk about this kale pesto, which mm. is a pesto, but but it's almost. It's almost not a pesto. It's something, it's kind of something new. It's
3: very, I mean, it's very saucy pesto. And so, yeah, we were inspired by Josh McFadden, um, the chef at Ava Jean's uh, in Portland. His cookbook,
1: Six Seasons, is a favorite of ours.
3: Yeah. His cookbook, Six Seasons, is just fantastic with like tons of ideas of like wonderful things to do with vegetables. And my feeling was, you know, like you can kind of never have too much green pasta (laughs) in your brand, you know? Everybody's got, like one if not two green pastas you know behind them whether it's pesto outright or kind of like a riff on a pesto-ish kind of thing but the fact is in the middle of winter you know you don't the idea of turning to a softer like basil or you know kind of parsley even feels a little bit beside the point whereas kale is bountiful and it you know, creates a pesto that is just so vibrantly green, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there is literally no more delicious way to eat a massive big bunch of farmer's market lacinato kale than to, you know, briefly blanch it in, you know, your boiling salted water that's destined for your pasta.
1: Okay, and then this is like the thing about this recipe that is new for me is you're cooking these greens in advance of making the pesto. Why are we doing that?
3: So straight up raw kale, It's just, it's so squeaky raw. It's so (laughs) vegetal. It's like you can almost feel it doing weird things to the enamel of your teeth the way like Swiss chard does sometimes, (laughs) you know, or like spinach in certain Mm -hmm. cases, you know. But you give it a very fast blanch. I mean, literally it's a 10 second dip even in your pasta water before you cook your pasta. And it just softens the kale Mm -hmm. just enough. It, It sets the chlorophyll in the leaves so you get something very bright green. It cooks it just enough so that it still feels like a raw you know kind of pesto it doesn't feel like a cooked sauce but the kale has been tempered it has been um it has been slightly subdued you Mm. know and it's just pure raw vegetable state you know it's been turned into something that feels like okay this is become like luxurious and soft and a little bit supple. And it frankly wants to puree a lot more easily.
1: Right. And is that adding to sort of the the saucier quality of the yes. of the pesto that we're ending up with?
3: For sure. For sure. So it, it means that your pesto becomes like a very, um, you know, kind of soft textured sauce. We're putting, you know, we're pureeing the kale with olive oil, and pistachio, I might add. So, you know, pistachio, it's like a very lovely, you know, kind of relatively subtly flavored nut, you know, in the quantities that we're using it. Um and it's soft enough so that it purees very easily so um yeah, not least of all it's green as well so that makes a certain kind of sense um, could but, I use
1: another nut if I wasn't yeah, a fan of pistachios you
3: could it's probably gonna leave you with a little bit more texture mm-hmm. you know almond or walnut would probably leave you with a little bit more kind of texture in your sauce but I mean that there's nothing wrong with that
1: yeah with pistachios and the and the kale you're getting almost like it's like a green juice on your pasta and it doesn't sound delicious but it actually really it really is a great texture to have it it just makes it feel almost like more luxurious than if it were well, like that almost, kind of tighter drier like
3: actual like a basil pesto in summer i mean i don't know about you but like i mean i can barely pick enough basil leaves oh, to no. like actually f- make enough pesto to have this degree of sauciness to mm-hmm. it you know what i mean Whereas this, is just like, I mean, the kale's just there for the kale. Like, I mean, my God, you know, they're like (laughs) selling it by the truck full. You know, it's like all that we have in the Northeast, like that and like rutabagas until like May. You You can
1: only eat so many kale salads. Yeah, you don't always
3: need that. So, um, you know, sure, we're putting Parmesan in it. We're putting olive oil in it. But pistachios, you know, replace some of the fat that you otherwise would probably need to add to it. So um, we're able to kind of keep that a little bit in check give you a little bit of richness, a little bit of that toasty kind of aromatic pistachio quality.
1: Yeah, it's a quarter cup of olive oil and an ounce of parmesan, which is pretty responsible. Yeah,
3: (laughs) fairly responsible indeed. And we really
1: liked this with um, farro pasta, whole wheat pasta, that sort of nuttier, fuller fuller kind of flavor pasta options. Yeah, you
3: really... When you're using a whole wheat pasta, you need to have a sauce that has enough flavor to balance it out. You know, if you're just putting whole wheat pasta with just like a regular kind of like pomodoro sauce, I find just like that whole wheat, that nut quality, is just hanging out like a bad smell, Mm -hmm. you know? This sauce, like it actually has enough flavor to balance it out. And farro pasta is like, it's not like as intensely earthy as some whole wheat pastas can be. It's like pretty, pretty restrained.
1: Yeah, but I could, I would do this with a brown rice pasta with any kind of gluten-free option, it could even handle like the the chickpea pasta, which sometimes can have that like aftertaste. You're on your own
3: with the chickpea <laughs> pasta, but I'm with you right through brown rice.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's cool. We can we can agree to disagree. <laughs> uh, if there's any if there's any sauce that can hold up, I think it might be it might
3: this be way. this. It might be this.
1: Um, all right, I want to go back to you, Andy, because we had we had a bit of a journey with this with this one recipe. This one is coming a. It, oh it's actually our second recipe so you'll get to cover it star two days nice. and um <laughs> it's it sounds simple it's a it's essentially it a well it well it is now <laughs> 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 this is our chicken soup of the year and i have to say like we we have a chicken soup on healthish or on ba as a whole i'm sure at least one every year and mm-hmm. Like, I just think the world can never have too much chicken soup. Agreed. They, ev- the, everyone always loves them. We always love them. They become our favorites. And, you know, I wasn't expecting to to pop one into the feel good food plan this year. We had that amazing chicken sweet potato one last year that I was like, cannot be topped. Yep. And yeah, we ended up with a chicken soup.
2: <laughs> I definitely wanted to do another chicken soup. I felt the pressure. <laughs> and I have done a lot of chicken soups for for BA, for Healthyish, for the, for the magazine, for BA.com. I wanted to do a soup that kind of was something that I had growing up. It's called um, Asha Alu. Ash means really soup in Farsi. Alu means plums. The plum uh, that I'm talking about, though, it's a, it's a kind of a sweet, tangy, and almost a touch salty dried plum that's added to the soup. Now. It's just that very did di- not end up in the final. It did soup. not end up in the final recipe because it's very hard to find, and just a regular plum or ap- apricot, I think, doesn't do the trick. I did try it with this. Chris Morocco loved it, or the dried like
3: apricots. It. Yeah, just yeah. added a little bit of that sweet mm-hmm. intrigue to go with that
2: turmeric scented broth. Yeah, just a touch of sweetness. But Andy oh, took it out. I did take it out. Instead, uh, it just a lot more streamlined. And for s- the
1: record, you took it out. There, you did not feel pressured to no, take it I out. No, I took it out on my own. I, I- did I not tell, tell, I never told Andy to take it
2: out. No, I pretty much just went on my own. I was like, w- we
1: could do it. We could sell a soup with <laughs> dried fruit in it. And then Andy changed his mind.
2: I kind of still kind of wanted to mimic those flavors of the soup uh, just without uh, the dried fruit. So, the, really, the way the soup starts out with is cooking a lot of onions. Uh, and that is, uh, you cook it until it's just golden brown, and then you add some garlic to it, sliced garlic, and then you take it to a point where it's almost charred at the ends, it's a little lacy, and then rather than leaving it in the pot, I scoop it out, and that's what's gonna be the topping for the soup.
1: So you make your topping first. Exactly,
2: and then you add, let's see, you add uh, boneless, skinless chicken thighs, red lentils that have been rinsed, and you add water, uh, turmeric, and you bring it to a simmer and cook it gently until the uh, lentils are very tender and the chicken is cooked through. Then you remove the chicken, kind of shred it apart uh, however you like, add it back in uh, with a little bit of parsley and some lemon juice, it needs that acidity.
1: And I know we talked about this, I was like, Andy, can't we call for a boneless piece of chicken that people aren't gonna have to like deal with the skin or take off the bone, and you were adamant that this broth needed
2: the yes. bone and chicken. Yes. I think I just said bone, boneless, uh, but it should be bone and skin on chicken. It There's not a lot going on. There's uh, I think there's just 10 ingredients, including salt and pepper. So you need the fat from the skin and you need the bone to add that richness uh, because we're calling for water uh, rather than stock. I'd say pretty much almost majority of my recipes, I never call for stock. If you have stock, throw it in. If you have a good chicken stock, go right ahead. But uh, I develop with just New York's finest fresh water uh, <laughs> tap. Uh, and then, so you have this super savory turmeric spiked lentil and chicken soup. I kind of bring it back to life with uh, some lemon juice. And then just plain yogurt, uh, not Greek. If you have Greek, just thin it out with some water. You want a drizzle. Uh, yeah, you want it to be definitely a drizzle just kind of to uh, flow to the top. And I just spoon the yogurt over, and then I top it with that uh, with the lacy onions and garlic that we cooked beforehand. And, and the it.
1: lentils in here are really great. It's not like a lentil soup where you really see them or even really notice, but they add this sort of richness and this body to exactly. it that make it seem like it's simmered, like it's a slow simmering kind of stew, even though it comes together in like the twenty minutes, twenty-five minutes that exactly. the lentils. There take
2: seems to cook. like there's a lot going on, but uh, really just uh, happens in like. 35 minutes in, in one pot.
1: I have to say we're really leaning into lentils these days and I'm, I'm here for it.
3: And frizzly onions. Like yeah. it, t- 2019 was very quietly the year of the frizzly onion, yes. I have to say. Like we put it on our squash bowls that Sola did. Mm-hmm. And her, um, and in
1: that sauce. And
3: in the korma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's a great technique. I mean just massive amounts of flavor. Cool. Alliums give you all that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So Let's talk about one more one more recipe, just in case you're not sold on the plan yet. I think there's one more that I, that I want to talk through, just because I think it deserves a little bit of love and and uh, and just kind of explanation. So we have our last recipe in the plan is a shrimp noodle salad, and I think we went back and forth on this one a lot. We thought, you know, is this too summery? How do we make this feel like it? you know, belongs as part of the plan? How does it feel? How do we make it feel like new and healthy-ish and not something you would see on like a, you know, your anywhere sort of Thai menu? Like what mm-hmm. what kind of goes into this dish and how did it come together?
3: Well, yeah, we started out with this idea. I had this vision of a Somtum salad, you know, like kind of like a green papaya, you know, Thai salad that I wanted to bring in like that kind of bright punchy like lime acid fish sauce, you know, cause just like, it's just great set of flavors to kind of sort of have at your disposal to just bring, you know, to do very little work, but like have like kind of maximum, you know, flavor. And I wanted to try it with lentils and that didn't work. There was just something about the earthiness of the lentils, just like was kind of at odds with how bright and punchy the dressing was. So we kind of did a bit of a pivot and, you know, then settled on shrimp because, it's one of those things that's like, we don't do that much with shrimp on unhealthy. Really and I don't know exactly why. I mean, it's just like, it's a readily available protein, you know, and a lot of people love it. I think just for us, like it often just doesn't feel like enough of a solution for people. You know, we want to kind of find a little bit of joy in like the unexpected things. So if we're going to do shrimp, like we want to do it in like a really great way. And What we came up with for this was the idea of having a fish sauce vinaigrette. So, you know, fish sauce, serrano, chili, honey and olive oil, you know, sort of forming like the backbone of this dressing for the noodle dish and as you know, that we use as a marinade for the shrimp itself. So the shrimp gets a 10 minute marinade in some of that dressing gets sauteed. So you get a little bit of kind of blistery, you know, kind of like flavor development from just that touch of honey, just allows you to get like a tiny bit of char on it. And then the rest of it is just sort of tossed together. We used glass noodles because they're incredibly springy and textural.
1: And tell us about glass noodles. So what do people look for? What are they made from? So they're
3: made from um, usually mung bean starch. um, And they're called glass noodles because when they're cooked, they're almost translucent, like transparent. And they have a very particular, particular firm, kind of like bouncy texture. That is like just for me, like way, way more delicious and intriguing than like rice vermicelli.
1: Right, where you get like the danger of overcooking and getting mushy. That's just such a fine line. They break
3: apart, the texture starts to disappear the smaller the noodle gets with rice noodles, I find. Whereas these, you know, even the thin ones, they just like cook up like very plump, you know, these like tight little coiled cylinders. Um, and that they're are like great kind
1: cold, of, which is how this yeah. dish is served.
3: So, yeah, the, the, um, the cooked glass noodles, you know, just briefly um, boiled in salted water and drained, get tossed with your remaining fish sauce vinaigrette. And then with crushed peanuts, cucumbers, basil leaves. So it's it's one of those simple things that came together in the end, like very easily, that we felt great about. But just a little bit of a winding road to get there.
1: Yeah, I think when we do use shrimp, we kind of we figure it out, and it's and it ends up being one of our best recipes. Like I always think about that shrimp and basil stir fry that you did, Andy, for our farmers market challenge two years ago, and what a staple dish that's become. And actually similar with the honey, a little bit of sweetness, like a really quick stir fry. Like I think that, yeah, I'm all about, I'm all about a little more shrimp in 2020 Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. All right, so before we wrap up, I wanna mention we, the feel good food plan is 10 dinner recipes, but of course, we always have a dessert and this year is no different. Um, Sarah Jampel, who is the basically editor and also writes uh, the not depressing vegetarian column on healthyish, uh developed our <laughs> dessert recipe this year. It is really a standout. Uh, you guys have both tried it. And yep. I think we agree that she really hit she it, it out of the park this time. Yeah. so um it's a it's a date caramel cup. Um, so, yeah, just puree dates with a little bit of salt makes this like just super luscious, rich. Uh, You know, completely naturally sweetened caramel um, between melted chocolate in sort of, she ended up doing them in muffin liners, right?
3: Yeah, just (laughs) as a way to kind of keep everything together. So it's like a turtle, you know, kind of like that formula of melted chocolate, pecans, or some other nut, and caramel. And so she used the date for the caramel, you know, and then she kind of assembled them in muffin tin liners, just as a way to keep everything together and keep that caramel contained. Um, so, that you can kind of dollop it onto the nuts, pour chocolate over, and everything just sort of like, you know, nothing kind of ends up sticking to you or mm. your counter.
1: <laughs> and these are great because they're little, they're bite sized. You know, you're not like, oh, I'm going to eat the whole pan by mistake. You just kind of grab and go. Great for after dinner. You don't want to eat
2: the whole pan, though.
1: You will want to, but at least you can, uh, yeah, try to have some restraint. And they keep for a long time. So, yep. you know,
3: if, if you can make it that long.
1: Yeah, a couple weeks in the fridge. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thanks, everyone. And, uh, yeah, happy cooking for the next 10 days and and beyond.
2: Thank you. Thanks, guys. All
4: right, well, I've just been alerted that we have 20 minutes to cover the entire world of gluten-free baking and cooking. We can do it in 18. not enough time. (laughs) It's, like, not enough time to, like, get a pot heated up with some uh, olive oil and uh, garlic simmering, as it turns out.
3: It's a little Mm -hmm. scant.
4: Well, let's maybe... Think about this in two ways. There's maybe just dividing the big world of the kitchen into savory and sweet Mm -hmm. and try to organize around that a little bit. So the two of you have a lot of experience in the gluten-free world, but from kind of different perspectives. Cause Anna, you're celiac. I have celiacs, yeah. So Anna's like the real deal. She's not just like on a GF diet. And I was oh. doing it before it was cool. Exactly. Yeah. I know. And I want to talk about that too, because mm-hmm. it seems like if there's a time to be gluten free, it just gets better it keeps getting better it keeps getting Mm -hmm. better and then chris is married to a gluten-free practitioner
3: yeah and my sister actually has celiacs so this kind of came up you know when i was in my early 20s nobody knew my sister had it until she was in her mid-20s oh um and And all of a sudden the hilarity of like four italian uncles being like wait you mean you can't wait (laughs) but what with the even if i and you're, no, Uncle no, John, no, she can't. No, really,
4: not just even a little bit of flour on yeah. the eggplant is not okay. <laughs> yeah. But you cook gluten free a lot at home.
3: Yeah, for the most part.
4: And so you've both developed GF recipes for Epi and for B mm-hmm. A so, yeah. and healthy ish. So and Chris kind of, is
5: very good at being my watchdog in the kitchen. Oh and, and making making c- sure I don't I.
4: eat things that have secret gluten in them. Yeah. That's well, a big thing. That's it a is. good place to start, actually. Yeah. So yeah. secret gluten. So if you're I feel like at this point in your life you're pretty attuned to like what will and won't or the times when you need to ask but what are some of the ingredients that if someone is just starting out on their gluten-free voyage might trip you up soy sauce soy sauce for sure because it contains in addition to soy wheat yeah not all soys do though right right tamari does not
5: contain you, wheat. Tamari
3: usually does not, but you really need to you check, to check. Each, each bottle because now Tamari is just kind of thrown around a little bit interchangeably with soy, mm-hmm. but you yeah. have to really flip the bottle and check.
4: And then there are some soys that are wheat-free.
3: Yes. Like we recently Like
5: the had. one that Lisa brought me, and I forget the name of it, yeah. but it was a beautiful Taiwanese soy sauce that was made just from rice. That's amazing. Yeah.
4: Okay, so soy... Sub tamari. Read the label. What are some of the other things? Gaochu chang, uh-huh. oyster
5: sauce, hoisin. Any of these sort of like fortified Asian condiments that might have thickeners in them mm-hmm. um, might have wheat in there or they might just have soy sauce in there that contains wheat
3: as well. And sometimes they always have it. And sometimes like with gochujang, they, sometimes they, they don't. It's just right. brand to brand. Interesting. It's wild. Yeah. So,
4: but because wheat is one of the eight main allergens that have been like deemed by the FDA, they have to be declared on the label. So actually you should be able to look at the nutrition Info and up at the top, it should call out specifically contains wheat, so you're not combing through. Because my next question was going to be what are some of the ingredients that maybe don't have wheat in the name that are like secret wheat for people with celiacs? um, We also can't eat barley,
5: uh huh. Um, And malt barley extract is used in a lot of cereals, right? So, like Rice Krispie treats, you might think are gluten free because they're rice, because it's rice, but they one of the flavorings is malt barley. It's kind of like an
3: alternative sweetener. Almost. Yeah.
4: And not all oats are also gluten-free.
5: That's right? a
3: cross-contamination That's issue. That's cross-contamination.
4: Yeah. You can't get GF oats. It just means that they're grown separately
5: and, and harvested separately. Wow. Because oats and wheat are often grown next to each other.
4: Uh, yeah. Yeah. When Cosmo was still had his sesame allergy, it was frustrating for me because sesame is the ninth so like the top eight are like soy, uh, eggs, dairy, wheat, whatever. And sesame is the ninth most common allergen, but it didn't make the cut. Like in whatever backdoor meetings in the capital they had, they went with those eight. So sesame is one that um, doesn't have to be declared in. Sesame in,
3: lobby was just too strong that year. <laughs>
4: <laughs> the all caps declaration. Yeah. Um, when does the GF challenge come up? the most in savory obviously things like you mentioned your italian uncles so like obviously pasta is a big one and so i go to a lot of restaurants now that offer gluten-free pasta it's usually with a two dollar surcharge which seems like a discriminatory practice yeah Mm -hmm. it's like the pink tax it's like some other pasta Calm I down. know why are you charging extra? but you had you have a favorite um, GF pasta Anna. I have two favorites.
5: I've tried a lot of different brands. I like the, the jovial brand gluten-free pasta as
3: like a pasta
5: substitute. It's, it's
3: incredible. It's what an
5: Italian brand 100 they make it brown
3: right. rice. 100% and I don't know what they're doing <laughs> to their brown rice that everybody else can't seem to figure out. The texture is wonderful. It really, it gets all dente and it stays all dente. The Mm -hmm. Casarecchi, the Pau. Casarecchi
5: is my favorite. Ooh, yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) delightful. Shout out to
4: Jovial.
3: Jovial, we love you. When Mm -hmm. I found it, it meant that I no longer cooked two kinds of pasta at home. Wow. It was so good that all of a sudden, oh. It's absolutely good enough for me. That's why I'm cooing and ooing and awing over here.
4: Um, I remember trying some gluten-free pastas a few years back, and one of the things that I remember from the taste test, which was like some one of those blind taste tests that we that we did, was that it was much more successful in the short, sh- the cut shapes yes. than yes. in the long. Is that still true? Yeah, because you don't true. have
5: the gluten holding it together.
4: Right. So, yeah. so it falls in a apart. strand, it f- has a tendency to break. OK, mm-hmm. so jovial, brown rice, and, and what else?
5: Jovial also makes a tagliatelle, though, that has oh. eggs in it. Oh. And that holds together better in the long strand because the eggs take over some of the binding power that gluten would usually have. Amazing. Yeah. So
4: when you're cooking, you throw a lot of dinner parties in Do yes. you ever cook pasta? Is that ever? I know it's hard to do for like pasta a Pasta for more eight.
5: than four people is just a terrible idea. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not you're not serving to friends. Pasta for two or three and they just eat the gluten free pasta that I'm
4: eating. Good. They don't mind. No. I mean they're getting a free A free dinner and hospitality. Exactly. someone's complaining, (laughs) they're on dish duty. One of
5: my Italian friends, though, once hosted me for dinner, and she cooked two separate pots of pasta. Wow. And then she tasted mine, and I had brought the jovial. Yeah. And she was like, oh, wait, this is actually good. I didn't have to have cooked two pots. There you go. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Okay. So double italian endorsement double italian endorsement (laughs) um and then and you
5: had a second brand oh i also love bonza i make bonza for myself for dinner quite often it is made out of chickpea flour so it does not mimic normal pasta right it's its own chris made a crazy chris does not like it Sorry, yeah (laughs) but for like a quick and easy gluten-free dinner and it's full of protein and fiber. Yeah, a lot of people
3: do this, even for kids. You know, people make it's you
5: more know, filling the, the than red pasta. lentil pasta, mm-hmm. you
3: know, all that stuff. And you know, we uh, maybe I found w- put a good one sauce that's on it. Okay, but I don't know. Sometimes it's just like I don't want to taste the pasta that intensely. Got it. You so, know,
4: and like, is it also softer in texture than? It's the, like a little chewier. Yeah, a little chewier and thicker. Oh, okay, yeah. but mm-hmm. not mushy.
3: The smell that comes off that water, though, <laughs> it's like that dark side of like bean water, mm-hmm. you know, where it's just a little funky, you know? Yeah, you but do
4: have an chickpeas are nose funky too. Yeah, they are. It's true. Yeah. Stick your nose yeah. in a can of chickpeas, which I did earlier today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, thank you. Okay, so that's two great recommendations where you wouldn't really have to change anything else except for the brand pasta that you're using and then what are the other things when you're reading a recipe anna you find most often you're like oh okay subs like flagging for substitution well if it's a
5: stew or a sauce that's thickened with flour right that is so a lot of times like
4: if you're making a beef stew you might like the French way would be able to like coat the pieces in flour right. before browning them. Sometimes it comes in in the form of a roux. Sometimes mm-hmm. you might do a beurre yeah. which is in our gravy this year. What do you? Yeah. Do what for do you that? do?
5: So when you know, I went to the French Culinary Institute, and my old school French teachers were like, "It's just a little bit of flour. You'll right. be fine. <laughs> like <laughs> it dissolves. <laughs> like it dissolves into the stew. You'll be fine, Anna." And I'm like, "Um, no, I no. actually won't
4: be fine." Yeah, so they let me do it with cornstarch instead. Cornstarch oh, okay. Yeah.
5: And do you um, use the
4: same amount or do you pull back a little bit?
5: Um pull back a little bit? Yeah, because yeah, cornstarch thickens up more.
3: Do you ever use a one to one? gf baking flour you know mix instead of ap in those applications in those
5: applications yes and you that do. also like in culinary school i had a i always carried a bag with me of cup for
3: cup okay oh, love it
2: because. in
5: your toolkit <laughs> yeah you're, like
4: and have like the secret baggie yeah
5: so
3: it'll build a roux similarly sort of maybe it's not, not it's quite. not
4: quite
5: as intense yeah. but it will that's cool do a little bit of what it's supposed to do
3: Occasionally, I will use like in small quantities, like if I'm making just like macaroni and cheese, but with like a very bare minimal of min- minimum of binding, um, I'll I'll use like the Bob's Red Mill one to one. That you know. didn't
5: exist yet when I was in school. Right, I right. know. I mean, that's cup the thing. for like, cup was the first one. Right. A lot of yeah. a
3: lot of these products are are fairly recent, and yeah. cup for cup was definitely you know big early entry in that space. Mm-hmm. And you know, I use Bob's, you know, because I tend to be able to just find it a little bit more readily. Right. Yeah, um,
4: cups, cup for cup, I used to have to go to Williamson
5: my god! Oh, they were the only <laughs> oh, wow. people who yeah. sold it i remember <laughs> so when it came expensive
0: out. very yeah.
4: um okay so thickening as a thickening agent and then um chris when you're doing like a cutlet or something like um eggplant parm that you might dredge in flour before yeah. doing the egg and not breadcrumb yeah <laughs> is, like how do you make a gf is, a good gf like chicken cutlet
3: you know okay so one often, of life's
4: comma one of life's great pleasures
3: i i make chicken cutlets for the kids all the time because it's just you know one big chicken nugget so of course they love it (laughs) right and so i'll often i'll either use cornstarch or i'll use gluten-free one-to-one flour on the chicken itself
4: because the function of the flour in that step when you're doing the three-step dredge is really just to get the egg to adhere yes so as long as the egg has something to hold on to
3: exactly it's Fine. You just need something very fine. Right. Right. So that the egg can kind of adhere. And then Kikomon, I believe it's Kikomon, makes a gluten-free panko that's not amazing, but it's serviceable. <laughs> it's a very strange substance. It's mm. like, it's like a hundred like percent, like, I don't know, some starch of some vegetable or right. something and like water and like, that's it. It's not bread. Right. I think could so you, you are use a
4: rice like a puffed rice that wasn't have that didn't have the barley malt? I mean, you, maybe you
3: could. Yeah, you could. Sometimes I'll use like a little almond flour. Mm. It, it's a little shaggier, you know. Um, it's a little kind of clumpy, but it but it works and like the flavor's really nice. Um, so I'll do that a little bit.
5: Rather than an almond flour,
4: I like to do like finely chopped nuts.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh uh-huh. So it yeah. has a little bit more texture. texture. Okay. Yeah. So um, we're
4: talking about now after putting on the flour for flour the dredge, then you've got dredge, your eggs so and you're egg. using a gluten-free flour or cornstarch or not almond flour. Almond flour is for the finish. So yeah. then going egg and then dipping into a nut flour or finely chopped nuts mm-hmm. or a or barley-free rice. Or cornmeal. Oh, cornmeal. Of course cornmeal. cornmeal. Mm-hmm.
5: That's it, true. It stays it super a, crunchy. It has a harder crunch to right. it. Yeah. But I kind of like it.
4: Right. Um, we also recently came across the sweet potato flour. Mm-hmm. Also, Anna was working on a great story that's going to come out in the December, January issue for Lunar New Year. Yep. We got turned onto the sweet potato flour. It was as a, so good. And it got really, really crunchy, crunchy without being like starchy or kind of brittle. Mm-hmm. That was a mm-hmm. good ingredient. Have you brought that home yet? Um, we used it all. I have to get more. <laughs> um, and then I remember, Anna, when we were working on Thanksgiving, I remember asking you very naively and kind of you know, with some ignorance behind it, too, like, how do you make a gluten-free stuffing? And Anna looked at me and she was like, you use gluten-free bread. Yeah, Carla. <laughs> and I was like, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Because that's the thing, too, and there are a lot of package, like we've been getting into the... Ezekiel, those are GF, right? No, no, no never mind. No,
3: <laughs> those are yeah, they're like sprouted. They're sprouted. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yes, yeah, better GF. for you,
4: but not. Do you have a favorite? You. Do you guys have favorite GF breads that you keep at home, packaged? So
5: I've recently discovered this bread on Fresh Direct. And it's from this place upstate called the Gluten-Free Bakery. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. From Chatham, New York. Yeah. That's, that's ours too. Shadda we could have just talked about this years oh, ago rather than having like crappy gluten-free bread for like years. It's so
5: good. They're brioche buns. The oh, hamburger yeah. buns. Have you had those? I
3: don't know if we've had those. Oh, got
5: to get those. They're labeled gluten-free hamburger buns, but basically they're just these huge delicious brioche buns and something about how much egg is in there Mm -hmm. again like we were talking about earlier using eggs in gluten-free products like helps replace the gluten that gluten-free brioche is so good wow
3: gluten-free bread is tricky because sometimes they what they come across to me is it's not that they're bad so much as just nutritionally void it's right. like too much white rice flour, uh-huh. you know, right. and not enough of anything else. But then
4: I feel like on the opposite end of the spectrum, you're getting the like miracle loaf thing. Oh, where yeah, It's just sure. like, life changing, life changing loaf. loaf, which yes. is like, you know, great All if seeds. you love psyllium husk and yeah. you're like cool with like dealing with the repercussions of eating that for the <laughs> yeah. next three days. But they're like, it's just, you know. Yeah, seeds being held together with the the jelly that forms when you soak psyllium. Like that's not something yeah. I'm gonna put a burger on. No. No.
3: No, not all. I do all.
4: like that bread. i like it. I like like a tiny little slice of it for breakfast yeah.
5: toasted. But yeah, you have to have that in small doses. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or like
4: Literally. you're saying, you could there are a lot of gluten free products out there that are highly processed and like right. not super great for you.
3: Right. Right, and I find you know at least something that has you know a little bit of maybe it's sorghum flour, brown rice flour, millet. You know, there's just other ways to build in kind of texture and a little bit of flavor intrigue, if mm-hmm. you will.
5: Yeah, Udi's makes a millet bread. Yeah, that, and Udi's is usually available at all grocery yeah, stores, like even like the random little ones in my neighborhood. But um, their millet bread is nice because it has whole grains of millet in it.
4: Cool. All right. So pathway to talking about flour and getting into baking because this is such yeah. a big. And we,
5: we need a whole separate
4: hour for baking. Do. But two of my favorite recipes um, that you guys have developed both happen to be gluten free. Mm-hmm. Um, one is Anna's heartbeat cake that mm-hmm. was on Healthy-ish last came out last February. Yep. And then Chris's gluten free carrot cake, which yep. I said at the time I would just make. Yeah. yeah. Even if there were. Plenty of gluten tolerant people around. How do you guys approach a gluten free baking challenge? Let's start with you, Chris. Is it about finding just the cup for cup or flour replacement, or or how do you go about it?
3: Yeah, you know, we've in the past we've tended to feel that offering somebody a recipe that's kind of just saying, okay, make this cake, but just instead of all purpose flour, put in this one to one gluten free baking mix instead feels a little bit like a cop-out. Like, you know, if you wanna take it upon yourself, like last night I I was making chocolate chip cookies and I knew it'd be a hit if I kind of made them gluten-free. So I used Bob's Red Mill one-to-one with BA's best chocolate chip cookies. I upped the flour by about 5% and it worked. The texture wasn't the same though, you know? It was was fine, Mm -hmm. but I think what we've leaned on a little bit more heavily is, you know, developing recipes that are purpose built to be gluten free and avoid, you know, having to make that kind of substitution from the get go. Right. And we do that, you know, in a few ways. But the, you know, what I've found with cakes and Anna kind of sh- pointed me towards this like amazing Alice Medric oat flour sponge cake that I did for my wife's yearly trifle birthday sort of (laughs) surprise thing Yes, Um, because it's hard to get like a sponge that's like really nice and light you know but like also gluten-free because you need that extensibility you know usually for um, you know in wheat flour to be able to get that kind of lightness but you know with the with the gluten-free carrot cake you know what we found was a similar thing of just beating eggs and sugar to the ribbon stage so uh, in other words incorporating a ton of air into Mm them like confers Already off the bat, a huge amount of structure to Mm -hmm. a cake such that you can take an almond flour, as was the case with gluten free carrot cake, and the cake will hold together. Got it. Yeah.
4: Because the egg is providing both structure and that elasticity and helping with rise.
3: Yes, exactly. So you're getting structure, you're getting binding, you're getting air. It's all happening.
4: Okay. So, and so, cause really anybody at home could kind of take the promise that's on one of these packages of like substitute, you know, a cup for a cup um, of any of these like GF baking mixes that exist. And kind of, if you're a gluten-free baker person, you're going to like mess around with it and you can kind of approach any recipe that already exists. But you're saying... We know it's going to be gluten-free. We know that the gluten-free substitution is going to come with its own kind of texture suitcase. Yes. And, like, what else can we do to kind of work with that to optimize it? Right. Well, that was very kind. Because that cake is so good. So good. good. And, like, (laughs) I love carrot cake. It's one of the two options of birthday cake Mm. that are available to you if you are in my family. What's the other option? Um, Marble cake with fudge Mm. frosting. Uh. That somehow... I don't know, both of my kids and my sister's kid had the carrot cake for their first birthday, and then they become marble cake converts. And my husband was always a carrot cake person, and then at a certain, I think it was just peer pressure. At a certain point, he was just like, you know what? People love the marble, and then we made carrot cake for Gia for her first birthday, like, a couple weeks ago, and now Fernando's back on carrot cake. So, April, I'm I'm gonna be like, maybe he'll know it's gf and maybe he won't and then anna what do you turn to when you're thinking gf baking
5: yeah i mean i think rather than like chris was saying rather than trying to replicate something but make it gluten-free um use the ingredients that i like to use the ingredients that i can eat Mm -hmm. and feature their unique flavors and i really love the book by alice medrick called flavor flowers which is what that oat cake that Chris was talking about is from because that's what she does in that book and she's an amazing baker and I trust her recipes she's a legend and she has chapters divided by different types of flowers and she's developed recipes in there that really feature the flavor hence the title of Mm -hmm. those flowers and she was the one who got me really hooked on oat flour like I love oat flour now it has such a delicious nutty oaty flavor and it has a really nice, fine, light texture to it. Mm-hmm. It's very good for cakes. And do you buy
4: oat flour? Do you buy gluten-free oats? And I buy and oat flour them? from Bob's Red Mill. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. a thing that it's people a thing.
5: can get. Yeah. Cool. Um, but I love doing cakes that are naturally gluten-free. Like okay. As often as possible, I try to develop recipes that don't require like crazy flours. Right. Um, so that anybody can make them. Like a flourless chocolate cake right. is naturally gluten free, but it's still a cake. Or, like my beet cake used a lot of well, beet puree, but then also a lot of cocoa powder in place of flour.
4: Right.
5: Um, so there's ways to get around baking without having to use flour substitutes.
4: So then something like a pie crust or a pastry crust that is really built on AP flour. Yeah, I just skip it. You skip it.
5: Yeah, I love a crumb crust.
3: It's it's hard.
5: It's hard to make a flaky pie crust gluten-free. Right. You yep. can make like a cookie-like crust for okay. a shortbread, you know, kind of like a shortbread-style crust for a tart. That can be really good. But yeah, if I'm making pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving, I'm um, pulsing up ginger snaps and pressing them into a crumb crust.
4: Gluten-free ginger snaps. My dough brand. So rather than yeah. fighting what's going to be a very difficult road, where just you're trying to choose make... a different road right
3: <laughs> i feel like there are rewards at the end of those roads you know like aaron when she came in and did her gluten-free sourdough mm-hmm. you know she was using like a whole mix of flours and stuff and it was um just aaron of cannelle vanille right um you know her bread is amazing her bread is amazing right. and she's gone deep into it and if you're but willing to do very that complicated you know then by all means like go ahead her
4: um, new book is out now yeah. yes. so it's that and it's beautiful it's
3: beautiful and she's awesome and, her and recipes those recipes are, work are, yeah yeah they work and they're great um but uh but yeah it's 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 tricky you yeah. know it's, it's definitely not for everybody so a
4: pressing crust is going to be like more working in your favor or yeah, a,
5: especially if you're like hosting thanksgiving yeah. and one of your guests is gluten-free and you've never baked gluten-free before right like just go with a pressing
4: crust make it easy and buy a gf cookie yeah, yeah.
5: Mhm. Um,
4: last words of advice for people stepping in mm-hmm. read the labels. Uh-huh.
3: Aha. <laughs> <laughs> I think people have never like been in a better position to like honestly like be able to eat GF but eat really well. So I mean, you've come along at the right time, I'd say.
4: Yes,
5: I eat so much years better ago, now
3: it probably than I did a when bit I was rough. diagnosed. Yeah. Right.
4: Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah. as a hostess myself, who is a complete ingenue about this, I would just say make chocolate mousse.
3: Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with chocolate mousse I love
4: chocolate wait mousse. but powdered sugar isn't powdered sugar one of the ones that sometimes has flour do you have to be careful
3: I didn't think so I thought oh, it was no? just only it's ever cornstarch
4: it's cornstarch okay yeah, myth maybe... busted cool. don't worry about <laughs> your powdered <cool>. sugar <laughs> <laughs> I think it's baking powder baking powder can sometimes contain oh. gluten because they often will carefully
5: label it gluten-free baking powder and recipes that are gluten-free will say, like, make sure you
4: use gluten-free baking powder. Interesting. Wow, I didn't know yeah. that's I love it when they started putting gluten-free on all the bags of potato chips. Ugh. Oh, It's like gluten-free potato chips, like, you don't say. And gluten-free milk. <laughs> hmm <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> all right, guys, don't forget the gluten-free milk. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thanks, Carla. Bye.
4: Thanks.
1: The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wartzman, with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Inamine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at Bon at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.